welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time out of your day to be with us for what I am confident is going to be an extremely interesting conversation for anybody who cares about conservation and the long-term good of the animals that we hunt and the habitat that they call home. And today we're going to dive into the subject of food plotting and a really exciting new method of installing and managing food plots. I'm going to call it a new food plot paradigm to use a a 50 cent word. And I've got on the line today a longtime uh, friend and contributor columnist for Peterson's Bowhunting. That's Mr. Jason Snavely, who writes our whitetails column. Jason is also a certified whitetail biologist and the owner of Drop Tine uh, Wildlife Management, which is a, a consulting uh, property management uh, firm uh, based right here in Pennsylvania. Jason, uh, thanks so much for being with me today on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate all your listeners for tuning in as well. Well, it's always good to catch up with you, man. And, you know, as we were talking a little bit before the show, I said, uh, you know, even myself, although I am the editor of a bow hunting magazine, I am not uh, someone who owns uh, his own hunting property. And I would imagine that the majority of listeners, because I know the majority of hunters across America don't all own their own hunting properties. And yet, when I read your columns that often deal with uh, topics such as food plotting, I find them fascinating and not because I am the world's biggest food plotter or because I manage, you know, some thousand acre estate that I, you know, manicure for my hunting or the hunting of my clients, but because the things that you are interested in are truly cutting edge when it comes to the way that not only can you run a successful habitat management program, but the science that you're using behind this is so much better for the environment, for your property, and for the animals themselves that it's amazing to me that we haven't woken up to this sooner. And so here's what I mean. And, you know, Jason, I want you to, you know, do most of the talking, but I want to set the stage for today's episode and and basically say a little overview for people. What are we going to talk about? I really want to contrast traditional food plotting with this new food plot paradigm that I will let you explain. And and basically, to, to open it up for Jason, think of traditional food plotting really evolved out of traditional agriculture, or what we'll, we'll, we'll say modern agriculture. In other words, as, as food plotting over the last 20, 30 years really got huge, really took off, how did people do food plots? Well, they just adopted the same practices that the big 
ag farmers were doing. And so you had a lot of synthetic fertilizers, a lot of herbicides and insecticides. You had a lot of tillage and all that stuff worked, but I'm not sure that it was sustainable for the long term. And now you've come along as well as, you know, not just you, but there's a whole group of people in a community that you're a part of sort of at the vanguard of this new paradigm in food plotting that takes a much more holistic approach to it. So with that as our starter, why don't you talk to me a little bit about your personal history? You know, you mentioned your property and, and you own about a hundred acres here in Pennsylvania. So it's a pretty modestly sized property and you've been able to do some amazing things in the time that you've owned this property and some of the deer uh, that you've taken off the property have been amazing. Talk to me. I think we can kind of use your own journey. And of course, you can work thing in, things in that your clients have done. But you've had, I think, an awakening in your own life. And we can talk about, you know, how you've gone through that process and what it means for all of the rest of us who are part of the, the hunting community, Jason. But that's a lot. But I don't know. We're going to have to take that in bite-sized pieces here, buddy. Well, hey, listen, I apologize. I set my phone down and walked over to refill my coffee cups, and I missed most of that. So if you could kind of recap what you just said. <laughs> Jason's making <laughs> making fun of me because that's what I did to him before we started the show. Yeah, he was he was talking a for a while, and I ran upstairs no, I, and did I, that. I was, I was keenly in tune with, with what you said, and, and um, yeah, I've done a lot of these podcasts lately, and I'm really excited for yours because – you know, you, you possess a unique ability and talent and I've sat and watched you in person, um, just e extremely well at, at asking the right questions. And I just did a podcast on the importance of questioning things, the norm and asking the right questions. So I'm really looking forward to this, but yeah, so that's, that's, you never, never tell Jason Snavely to, to do most of the talking. Number one, you should know that. Um, but you know, from, from this, uh, we're going to call it regenerative wildlife agriculture. Um, I, I also like the term regenerative ecology because we are not just, as you and I discussed a little bit before this, we're not just talking about guys who own their own land or girls who food plot or whatever. It's anybody who's interested in the natural resources that we pursue and enjoy. So my journey in the regenerative aspect of things, you know, I'm a slow learner. Um, <laughs> It took me a while to, to come around. Fortunately, I'm very good at observing. I think that's one of the things I want everyone to take home today. If you don't really remember a lot of the jargon and the, the new language, so to speak, of regenerative agriculture, is th there's no book. There's no um, cliff notes on the answers. You need to ask the questions and just go in the field and, and observe. And that's how I ran into this myself. You know, I, I, I really didn't hear any of these um, uh, popular regen ag folks, um, who most of now are, are really good friends of mine. And I've just learned so much from them. Um, but I didn't hear any of them speak and, and until after I sort of ran into this aha moment of, you know, of my own. And, you know, I spent 15 years traveling to see consultants and work or to see properties as a consultant and working on my own farms, multiple properties in multiple States. And, you know, we're, we're all, we're all taught and we have this certain toolbox that we take to the job. And of course I learned how to farm from, from 
you know, conventional or, or modern farmers, if you will, the largest one in my county. And I'm appreciative of all that. But sort of my aha moment came and I can I can really narrow it down to one or two particular days when I rode my, my bad boy buggy out into the, the food plot, uh, typically late winter when things are dead and it's sort of a new slate for me. I would go out and just observe and say, okay, what worked, what didn't, and I'm designing this property for my kids you know, to basically observe and shoot deer. And as I'm out in the fields and I'm looking at different habitat types and I'm digging holes, I'm looking at this, this dirt, this geology uh, in my ground and I'm thinking, okay, something does not look right. What am I doing here? And you know, in college, you're taught about wind erosion and water erosion, obviously, and, and how ecology works and natural succession. And I just felt like something was wrong. The, the dirt, the geology looked dead, and, and it turns out it was. It is. So, you know, I've, uh, I had a soils professor who docked us a significant number of points um, for calling it dirt and instead of soil when in fact, most of what we have in the United States, whether you're in Iowa, Michigan, Pennsylvania, or Georgia, is dirt. We've eroded the A and O horizons, and it's, it's geology at this point. So that's kind of where my aha moment came. And as a fan of research and learning, constant, constant knowledge and questioning, I started to dig deep. And that's when I ran into a couple of folks. Um, who were really into the regenerative side, uh, regenetic side of things. And I traveled, I flew to them, I drove to them and went to conferences, cut a bunch of the deer conferences out for a couple of years and just absorbed all this knowledge. And what I quickly learned and realized, Christian, and I'll sort of end it here and let you kind of run with it, is that, duh, I don't know, you might remember the political quote, the famous political quote, uh, it's the economy, stupid. Well, I sort of stole that. And, and I like to say it's the biology, stupid. So here I am as a biologist standing on the rooftop of another world, as Dr. Chris Nichols says, the biology under my boots needs, just needs me to help it as a biologist. So once I realized that the soil is all about biology and ecology, it became easy. And, and I go to these, you know, to Kansas and other places, to these conferences where, where agricultural folks are there. And these are big time ag guys, you know, in the Midwest, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, farming thousands and thousands of acres. And you sit there and you watch, you know, 100, 200, 800 guests, um, attendants, try to, try to make the change and try to, you know, be open-minded and, and they're farmers and growers who, you know, their livelihood depends on it and they're struggling to understand why they should take this huge risk and possibly lose their farms when in fact the way they're farming is causing them to lose their farms. And, and I, I realize instantly why it's so easy for me to fully grasp, grasp this and run with it and buy into it. It's because I'm a biologist and uh, I'm sort of, um, you know, duh, right? I'm a slow learner. So as the biologist, biologist, it has been easy for me to take and run with it. And, uh, you know, I think that's one thing I'm very fortunate. So now I'm trying to teach some of the very farmers who taught me to drop steel into the ground and when to fertilize and 
how to fertilize and when to spray and the whole nine yards. So it's the biology, stupid. How about that? I'll, I'll kind of throw that onto your lap. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about, you know, farmers uh, and you're trying to teach them. I would say this, uh, you know, I'm not a farmer, but I know uh, farmers here in my area. And, and thanks to the good graces of farmers, I have you sure. know, some play- places to hunt. And I will say this, farmers are no different than anybody else, Jason. And that is what I mean by that is they're very resistant to change. And Again, we're all resistant to change. It doesn't matter if you're a baseball player or a golfer. You know, if you're a golfer and you've got a terrible hitch in your swing and, um, you know, you go hire some $100 an hour golf coach and he tells you to change your strength swing, what's the first thing you do? You, you tell him, I don't want to change my swing. And he's like, well, you're paying me $100 to help you right. improve, improve your game. And I'm telling you that your swing stinks. So you're going to do Absolutely. what I tell you to do. And, you know, that's kind of where we're at with with farming, in my opinion. You know, farmers, not because they're bad people, not because they don't care about the environment, not because they want to destroy, you know, the soil and the long term viability of their land. Uh, they're doing things the way they've already always done them, because mm-hmm. that's what they've been told that they have to do by uh, a lot of uh, big corporate interests that have, you know, figured out a way for the last probably two to three generations to maximize yield through chemistry <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of biology. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And so let me tie that now directly into hunting. And I'm just going to share an anecdote from my early years at Peterson's bow hunting. Um so I started at the magazine in 2008, so it's going back 12 years, and it was probably around 2010 or so, I had an opportunity to head out to Missouri and hunt on a really, uh, what what we would all have considered at the time to be one of the, the finest managed whitetail properties in northern Missouri. And I'm not going to mention the name of the, the person who owns this property because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Uh, really nothing to be embarrassed about, but I just don't want to call anybody out. This property had food plots like you wouldn't believe, and they were lush, green, beautiful food plots and the deer absolutely flooded into these things, you know, and he had clover plots and turnip plots. And yeah, he had some standing corn and all manner of things. But the point is every single one of these plots had two things in common. One, they were all plots that had been created and managed by what? The, 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 the significant use of herbicide, right, to, to basically clear those areas of, of existing vegetation. Then mm-hmm. the other thing they had was they were all monocultures, right? So, so herbicide was used, seed was planted, whether that be soybean seed, corn seed, right, uh, turnip seed, clover seed, you name it. And then as time would go on, those plots were then managed and maintained with any necessary chemical inputs of fertilizer and herbicide insecticide as needed and the end result to the to the untrained naked eye was like this was nirvana okay this was this was just the way that you did it and and we held up didn't we as a as a deer hunting culture didn't we look at properties like that and say to ourselves man if i ever had the time and the money that's how i'd do it and 
basically that was do, doing it, quote unquote, right? It in quotation marks, that was doing it just like the farmer down the road who had 500 acres of corn or beans that he was farming. We were doing it the same way that he was doing it. And again, it seemed still does. There's still a lot of people doing doing it that way. It can seem great. But the problem, there's lots of different problems with that, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what we can talk about. But basically, and here's the thing. Now, just give me quick hit, hit answers. True or false? You, you That's how you did it and told your clients to do it for a lot of years, right? True. And And you bought your property in what year, Jason? 2006. Okay. And so for how many years did you do your thing on your own property this way for about what 10 years 12 years yep 10 12 sure okay so to about 2016 2018 so in other words you know we're not throwing stones at people here and 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 so if you're out there and you're listening and you're like hey i do food plots like that and i think they're great and i kill nice bucks we're not we're not you know, really trying Absolutely. to cast judgment. It's just that I've been so fascinated at the the things that you've been teaching me and our readers through your columns and the results that we're getting that I that I hope that, you know, if you are out there and you're like, hey, I've been I've been doing things that way too. You're telling me that there's another way to do it. Now here's the catch and we I should have led with this. So if you've stuck with us for 17 minutes, I guess I'm finally getting to the punchline here of why why do you want to listen to the rest of this hour? We're gonna spend the rest of this hour talking about how you can manage properties for wildlife in a way that not only is going to be just as effective from a hunting standpoint, but it's going to be better for your ground or the ground that you hunt, and it's actually going to cost you less money. So, like, how is that not a win-win-win? And so... So with that as the backdrop, okay, with with the old paradigm being food plotting was basically a miniature version of of farming, just like, you know, any farmer would farm. How then have we shifted that, Jason? And and big thing that I want you to focus on and use just use a real life example from your farm. Talk about some of the, the fields and food plots on your own farm or client farms and say, you know, this was a field where at one time, you know, we'd we'd spray this every year, we'd disc this every year, we'd replant this every year with this one thing. And compare that, contrast that, you know, it's going back to the old eighth grade you know, composition or whatever, compare and contrast that with what you're doing now, because you're using different tools, you're using different methods. And in doing that, you're dramatically reducing the costs and and the need for putting those synthetic fertilizers and those herbicides onto the ground, which I don't know about you, regardless of how you feel about, say, Roundup, You know, you may be one of those folks who thinks everyone who touches it is going to get cancer in six months. You may be one of those people who's not nearly as concerned about it as that. But I guarantee you, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, if I poured a cup of it into a into a glass and handed it to you, none of us would drink it. So I don't think there's I don't think there's anybody out there who would say if I can put less of this stuff onto my dirt or onto the dirt where I 
hunt and onto the dirt mm-hmm. where the pl- the plants that the animals that I eat consume the plants that come out of that ground. I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find anyone who wants to raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to put more of that on my property. Sure. Sure. Well, they're, and they're all disruptors. Yeah, they're all disruptors. Everything you just ran down through from tillage to chemicals to uh, synthetics, they're all disruptors. And, and, you know, I know everybody's heard enough about the virus and things that are going on. But when you look at health, you know, health is really the ability to resist, survive, bounce back and, and thrive in the presence of health, health disruptors. And, you know, me going through Lyme disease is, is really one of the main it obviously happened to me for a reason because going through Lyme disease, gut dysfunction and having my immune system compromised has made me so much healthier, exponentially healthier. And it made me see the light in the soil because the soil works in very similar way. Well, exactly. It's exactly like our gut biology. And, uh, you know, going back to the catch, everybody's listened for more than 20 minutes now. The catch is, if you could spend more or spend less money managing food plots and, and you know, I, I often hear other food plot companies and people say, well, food plots aren't that expensive. Just plant one. Well, that's just, uh, you know, planting traditional food plots conventionally with modern farming technology and, and principles practices is nothing close to being inexpensive. It's expensive. So if you could do it, if you could, if you could gen- regenerate your ecology, have a healthier system, you use zero synthetic fertilizer, use none of the chemicals that are absolutely disruptors, whether you believe they are carcinogenic or not. There, there's no doubt that as a chelator, they're binding to nutrients and they're having severe, severe negative impacts on, on the biology in the soil than on us. That, that's a fact. We don't need any more science to prove that. So you know, as, as a consultant, that was really, you know, I misspoke. I, I farmed the conventional way for about nine years. And then I spent a couple of years researching this because as a, as a consultant, I hate, hate to keep bringing that up. It's not a commercial, but as you can imagine, when you go to your job, your place of work, and you hope to get that check to be able to go buy your kids new dirt bikes and whatever they want and pay the mortgage, you, you, there's a lot of pressure there. So when I started to, to realize we're doing this all wrong, I started to play around on my own property here in Columbia County, Pennsylvania. And I thought to myself, all right, this is great. I, I, I buy into it, but are the, are the people paying for this and the people reading Peterson's bow hunting who, who want to kill more deer, let's face it. Is this for them or is this for some green new deal people who, you know, are just into conservation and, and whatever. And that, that's the big question. And the, the more I got into this and the more I cut out um, from, the, from the tillage to, you know, the chemical disruption of, of the soil um, to incorporating diversity and year-round living roots and, and covering the dirt, the, the more the wildlife from all aspects above and below the ground, I apologize, the, our, uh, our allergies are starting to get to me here. I just came from Florida to PA and it's like a shock to my body. But the, you know, that, that whole thing starts to come into focus and you know, where, where you nailed it there is we have turned plants into nitrogen addicts, right? So, you know, we've taught plants how to become nitrogen addicts. That, that farm that you said you hunted in, in Missouri, you know, that had the beautiful food plots that, you know, I once had soybeans, forage soybeans at six and seven feet tall and was just proud as a new parent of those beans and 
you know, the farmer was even jealous <laughs> and he started buying those beans from me and, you know, just super proud. That was a crack addict plant. That, that particular field was so dependent on my continual spoon feeding of an artificial supply of nitrogen that it, it was expensive. It was expensive to the ecology. It was expensive to my checkbook. And, you know, we've gone two years now with zero synthetics, and I've never seen my field look so good. Um, last, I've gone a year and a half, two years now without chemical, you know, Roundup, Clive, uh, the, the whole nine yards, 2,4-D, you name it, the, the clefidims and cetoxidims and, yeah, all the others. And, and I've never had a better, healthier relationship with the soil biology than I have now. And I have a problem, Christian. My problem is, and you've been here, you, you've seen this. We have a lot of deer. My problem now has become that I have too many deer and it's like a welfare state now on my farm and that I'm supporting deer from so, by the way, I don't supplementally feed. Um, I put out some minerals here and there for pictures, you know, all summer, then get rid of them. But we've got deer coming for miles. You can backtrack these trails for miles. And just like you don't want all of your, your kids to bring their friends over all summer long and live with you and destroy what's in the refrigerator, I don't appreciate these deer coming from so far to eat and then take my carbon from my fields and go poop it somewhere else in the woods or whatever. So, you know, in South Texas, there's a lot of really good managers who, who high fence and people think they high fence to keep deer in. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. They high fence to keep deer out that they don't want in. So we've actually gotten to that state. But so, yeah, we, you know, we, we have learned from conventional farming and obviously as food plotters, you know, that, that's, that's where we developed our system. Um, so, so how do we get away from that? And I think, you know, before I get to some of the real, real world examples, which everyone really enjoys, it, to me, it's, it's a mental, it's a mind shift. It's, it's understanding that you know, nature, nature has that nature's got this nature doesn't need us to help it. It just needs us to get out of the way. It needs us to stop dumping caustic, destructive, toxic chemicals in the ground. And, and it needs us to, to feed the biology. Right. So, you know, recently, uh, somebody well, posted I, a slide. If I can interrupt you there before yeah, go you ahead. go on, go um, we also have to change our own mindset because we have whether it's whether it's me in my yard here right right outside the house or you in your food plot or the big commercial farmer in his cornfield we all have an idea of what a quote unquote perfect uh manicured field looks like again whether it's whether it's your grass your food plot or your big ag field and they're not natural and and you know i use this term earlier you'll use it again you know monoculture versus biological diversity and your big thing and we'll get we'll get into this soon is look anywhere i i ask you know all of our listeners look anywhere in the woods in in a meadow 
uh, in nature and tell me where you see a vast area of only one kind of plant growing with no other plants there. And it just doesn't exist. And it's because that, you know, nature, um, you know, is designed in such a way that all these different species of plants and animals on the landscape sort of create an ecosystem that is all interdependent and complementary to one another. And Jason will be talking, I'm sure, very soon about how he's done that. But before you go into that, I wanted to make that point that you have to you have to go into it understanding that it's going to look different, but different doesn't necessarily mean worse. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because when you start to talk about some of these blends that you're doing for food plotting now, uh, I'm sure you've had people, and I've thought this myself, as you've sent me some pictures of these things to go with your columns. If you don't really know what we're talking about here, you're going to just look at that picture and you could just in two seconds look at that and say, that looks like you have a weed field here. You know, that's not a food mm-hmm. plot. And so mm-hmm. you have to understand that just because it doesn't look as pristine as what we've all been sort of conditioned to think is a pristine field doesn't mean sure. that it has any less value to the to the deer to the turkeys to other wildlife you know and Paul I know like uh, bees everyone knows honeybees are at crisis point in the world right some of the things that you're doing are tremendous for bees and other pollinators and point is protein contents in a lot of these plants are right on par you know with a soybean plant um so my point is you gotta you yeah, gotta well, you gotta go into this with an open mind man you hit you hit a lot of things there you know we, we had a local beekeeper contact us and ask if if he could put some hives on us and they're now here on the property and what intrigued him was the fact that we are 110 percent regenerative um, chemicals are not welcome tillage you know soil disturbance is not welcome uh, we thrive on diversity and, and planned disturbance in, in nature. Nothing is ever, you know, the same. It's constantly disturbed. It's resilient. So, but you, you hit so many really good things there. And, you know, we, we have hammered, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on. And again, I, I was part of the problem. So I'll throw that disclaimer out there and I'll, you know, self-deprecate. So, so it's time I'm, I'm challenging even my competitors who really don't, you know, none of us compete. Uh, I'm challenging everyone in the food plot industry, whether you make a product or you're a consultant to, to join and to follow along, because this is the right side of nature. When you look at the way we've done this with food plots, you know, food plotting really began in Pennsylvania. Most people don't realize that they think of the Southeast and a couple of clover companies. Um, the Pennsylvania game commission planted clover and oats you know, back in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s before, you know, anything was really commercially available. And, you know, we we planted monocultures. That's what we did then. And then, you know, many of the seed companies still promote what I call monoculture and minimal culture. You know, there's three or four or five or six or seven species or fewer. That's not how nature works. And you've said that. So what we noticed is that if a white-tailed deer does not typically prefer, you know, as a conventional deer biologist, we call them ice cream treats, right? Uh, If they don't typically prefer hairy vetch as a monoculture, my fellow deer biologists write that off as deer will not consume hairy vetch and it's really not worth considering as a forage. Okay, I question that. So when you put 
15, 17, 29 different species in a blend. No, I'm not proposing that they all reveal themselves, nor do I want that. But when you get to species complementaries, I think a lot of this has to do with understanding how the biology works, and none of us want to learn that. But when you put multiple species together, they work together in a symbiotic way. They, they actually connect via mycorrhizal fungi and different plants, a, different, a, a, a diverse plantscape actually puts off a diverse uh, uh, root exudate, which feeds a diversity of food to the biology. So I always say to people, can you imagine, you know, I love steak. Uh, there's a lot of things I love to eat. Can you imagine just living on a steak diet only? You would get tired of that. Well, that's what the biology is doing, what, what minimal biology still exists in a soybean field. It's just eating the plant exudates, the root exudates from one species. So this is the part that, that people need to understand is that the plants feed the microbiome, the microbes in the soil. The microbes go get the nutrients and bring it to the plants. We've, we've come to think or believe that the way to grow a plant is to dump uh, a, a little ball of fertilizer in the soil and then it, you know, the water, the rainwater takes it down and the root absorbs it. It's just, it, it just doesn't work that way. That's not the way it works. So the majority of the nutrients come from the plants exuding these attractive compounds that the biology say, hey, I need that. I'm going to go get that. And in exchange, they swap that. That's the process that went on for years and years and years before humans said, hey, we have all this affordable nitrogen that we no longer need to make bombs for World War II. What are we going to do with it? Well, we can make fertilizer and sell this idea to farmers that they need to feed a, a booming population, right? The, the, the baby boomers. And they need to feed billions and billions of people, so you need to increase your yield. Well, what we've done along the way in trying to increase our yields and trying to seek out the most improved varieties is we've lost primary compounds, secondary compounds, all of these beneficial plant secondary compounds that, that equate to nutrition. Same yeah, reason let, that let, all of us are so unhealthy yeah. right now ourselves yep, yep. is because we've depleted the nutrition in our food our 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 veggies so so let me yeah let me interrupt you want to summarize what you just said in a very layman's term think about what jason just said basically you have plants growing up right and roots going down and then when those plants die those roots decompose if the plants themselves remain on the top that matter decomposes goes into the soil there are microbes in the soil that break those decaying plant matter down and feed on that. And then as part of the process of those microbes doing that, they are also altering compounds in the soil, different minerals and things that are there and making the nutrients that are in the soil available once again to the next generation of plants that are going to go into that soil. And so that's sort of the circle of soil life. And I'm sure I oversimplified that, Jason, but I think that everyone can sort of understand that concept. And so and so <laughs> well, that's even, the next, even that, better than that. To, 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 I don't want to lose that point. Even better than the plant having to die. Living plants and living microbes in the soil work together. They have formed this symbiotic relationship of working together. We 
through plows and chemicals and all the destruction, have we've interrupted that. We have made plants and microbes lazy. We've made plants lazy because we're dumping synthetic nitrogen in the soil, so they no longer need the microbes to go get that for them. So let, let me paint you a picture. I know it's hard oh, to but, understand. And, but, but before, and before you do that, though, I just wanted to connect. You, you were just starting to say, and you had some of these statistics in one of your recent columns, when they took uh, some vegetables from, you know, like current generation plants and farming methods and analyzed the nutritional data. And then they got some vegetables from like 40, 50 years ago and analyzed the nutritional data. They found that that there's a lot more nutrients packed into those vegetables from 50 years ago than there are from today. And that's because of the, how much we've, we've, degraded the soil because let's face it when you eat a when you eat a salad what are you really eating you're eating dirt and when you eat a deer what are you eating you're eating you're eating a salad you know what i mean when you eat a deer you're eating we we need to start looking at this as feeding the microbes feeding the soil we're not feeding plants we're not feeding deer we're feeding the soil and the soil will take care of the rest of it for us allowing us to save all this money on chemicals and pesticides and the whole nine yards but you know, if, if you could imagine this root, this living root, let, let's take a corn root, for example. It, that root tip, the rhizosphere around that root tip, way down in the soil, which we can't see, so we don't understand how it works. It exudes, or it almost, like you sweat. When you sweat, you exude little droplets, right? Living plants do that. And why do they do that? They're baiting nutrients. It's like you dumping a pile of corn to bait deer or whatever you're baiting. They're baiting the little microbes in the soil, okay? So bacteria, fungi come along, and that, that's how they get energy because they don't have chlorophyll where they can, you know, they, you know, go back to fourth grade science, they can't use water and sunlight and oxygen and, and make food. So they rely on the plant to do that. So that symbiotic relationship is what we've destroyed. As those plants leak, even, you know, you know uh, carbs, carbohydrates, you know, sugars, those microbes feed off of that. We now know through amazing technology that the, the, the plant roots can actually absorb these little microbes, these little balls of fertilizer, steal the, steal the fertilizer from them and expel them out the root hairs. Now, if you don't think that's cool, I don't know. That, that right there is the ticket to, I, ha- I have guys say, well, how do you get away from not using fertilizer? Right there is the ticket. That's it. Well, you, you, you guys have taught, you know, and I, we got to get on to some of these real world examples, but just to kind of close that, it, by, by, by having healthier soil, and again, I'm going to put this in very simple terms, and I think this is all most of us really need to understand. By having healthier soil biology, you're making a lot more nutrients available naturally. So instead of having to dump your fertilizer onto the ground you're allowing these you're allowing these microbes to make the stuff that's already in the ground available to the plants because one of them by dumping it in the ground you're making the process lazy and you're interrupting that process so at some point just like if you're addicted to alcohol or drugs or whatever at some point you must stop weaning off of it and allow that system to work like it's intended to do or do what me and most of my clients did, just say cold turkey, 
that's it. I'm done. This isn't right. Just end it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, and we, you know, we're, I don't want to go into this right now, but a lot of the <laughs> stuff that you dump on is not, it's not all used by the plants anyway. And so then you get what no. everyone knows we would be commonly returned to, uh, referred to as agricultural runoff, which is right. essentially nutrient rich uh, wastewater that goes into our streams and rivers and causes all kinds of things like fish algal gills and, and fish algae gills, blooms yeah. and all that good yeah. stuff. So and I'm not, we're not even going to go there because what I want to no, do now there, is I, there's one good take home for the listener who, who survived this long is even if you don't buy into this and you don't want to cut your synthetic fertilizers, you know, there's 50 year old data that show that 50% of the nitrogen fertilizer you throw in is, is wasted. It's never utilized by the plant. So you can at least cut your nitrogen bill by 50%. That's, that's fairly significant for many. Now let's, let's pivot over and talk about some of the things that you guys are doing pretty commonly today. So talk about, we already kind of talked about, and I think most people understand how it's been done. So let's, Talk about how it's being done today by yourself and, and uh, your clients and many of those uh, who are like-minded. Um, take me through a, a basic yeah. uh, food plot prep. And I know some big things that Jason is going to be touching on here. Uh, one thing is cover cover crops and the fact that he really has gone from a, like a plowing, disking type mindset to now – wanting to keep a layer of vegetative material on top of his soil all the time, like it's a blanket on top of a bed and he never wants to remove the blanket. And so he's really just replacing uh, one thing with another as the seasons come and go. And so uh, the other thing that we're going to hear about, which is something I had probably never heard of until about maybe two years ago, is a, a device called a roller crimper. So with that, Jason, talk to me about, you know, how you're doing food plots now, uh, what that sort of no tillage um, methodology is accomplishing and how you're using that roller crimper to really replace uh, a disc or a drag plow or, um, you know, a, 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 any number of other tools that you would have used in the past. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it, it really boils back to the principles of soil health. And, and I don't want anyone to think that they need a drill or a roller crimper. Those are tools that certainly, you know, if you go to, I've got some guys building a deck for me. If you go to build a deck, you, you probably should have a hammer. You know, it's going to cost you some money, but you need it certain amount of tools you need, certain amount of tools that are just convenience. Um, you know, so the way that we farm now or food plot now, or really the way I look at a, 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 the ecology of a property is, is in biomimicry. In other words, if it doesn't mimic nature, I'm not going to do it. So, you know, <laughs> we, we, we used to look at, we're going to prepare the seedbed, right? We would disc it or plow it or rototill it. And, and destroy, by the way, the, root, the, the soil structure and the soil aggregates, which are formed by the biology. Now I look at a seedbed as it better, I better not be able to see the soil or the dirt anywhere. I did a little video last night that I posted. I was out, you know, as the sun went down, looking for areas to supplement with my drill 
I mean, these are areas the size of your foot, maybe, where where the soil was was revealed. And I, I don't like soil to be. Uh, I don't I don't want to see any soil at all. So, you know, that's the first first and foremost. Is our seed bed now looks completely different than what our seed bed used to look like. So you're looking at green plants, living roots, feeding that biology year round. If you're not feeding the biology, it's not helping you go get those nutrients. So obviously the tillage equipment, the discs, you know, I've, I've used some minimal disking. We did some research in Texas with Dr. Rick Haney on some, some minimal disking to see how the biology responds to then spring reload, which is a, 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 biological primer that we have and a diverse um, cover crop mix, if you will, for deer. Um, but, you know, the, the, those, those biology live in the top four inches. So I've had guys say, well, you know, I don't, I don't plow anymore, but I just disc it lightly. Okay. If you disc the top four inches, um, which zero to six is typically the, the area we're worried about most of the time for the root zone, you are destroying biology. So when we follow the, the new six soil principles, soil health principles, um, obviously we limit disturbance, we're armoring the soil, uh, we're planting diversity, we're maintaining living roots, and you know obviously the animal integration is key, having the deer um, you know, poop. We don't have cows like the regen guys do. Um, and then context, everybody kind of has their own context for it. So let me, I wanted to touch on some of the, the uh, just use a real world example of a problem that I had or that, that most people have in clover plots, right? If you think of a food plot from the eighties, <clears throat> you know, there was a race by a couple companies to make the, the most genetically advanced deer clover. You remember that? They, they, they reported sure. protein levels that, you know, if we, if we fed deer 30%, 38% crude protein, you know, they would be urinating blood and it just wouldn't work out for them long term. So at some point we got crazy on that. But when you think about the clover plot pumping all this nitrogen, clover is a nitrogen fixer along with bacteria, pumps nitrogen in the soil. When you put nitrogen into the soil, you fertilize a lot of grass, right? So for years, we did this crazy headbanging thing of we would drill in clovers or broadcast clovers. And then when the grasses came, we would spray the snot out of them and that wouldn't kill them. Ironically, they would keep coming back and then we would spray them again and just keep spraying them. So everywhere we sprayed, we ended up with these voids and skips and we blamed the seed, you know, the food plot companies. We said we weren't good farmers. What the soil was trying to tell us, if we would have just stopped and observed biomimicry and what was going on, is the soil strive for a carbon nitrogen balance. So when it has all this nitrogen it needs to get more carbon in the soil. And the only way to get more carbon in the soil is with plants like grasses, cereal grains, broad leaves. So all of these, these weeds, quote unquote weeds that are coming are really just coming. They're coming on because of our mismanagement and they're great plants by the way, but it's a, it's a reflection of our failures. So as I sit there and I look at that, I think about the soil principles and how nature works. I thought to myself, and this was a client in Ohio I said to him one, one winter, I was meeting with him for the second or third time in a decade. I said, here's what I want you to do in these clover plots where there's, and he had some skips and voids. You could have put a Volkswagen in. I mean, just, you know, big areas where he obviously had grass infestation last year. He sprayed heavily, killed the grasses. Now he has bare dirt. Well, what's going to grow in that area? More weeds. So I gave him some spring barley, some spring trit. 
And I said, I want you to take these and drill them in in February. He thought I was crazy. Drill them in the ground in February you know, when it's stalled and see what happens. Well, when March and April came, the cereal grains had filled in in these voids and he didn't have to spray. And by the way, I told him while you're doing it in the small box on your drill, I want you to load that up with this particular clover. So what he had was a nurse crop or, a, you know, the cereal grains coming up in those voids instead of the, the, the natural plants, most people call them weeds or the wild plants, I'll call them. So, so deer and turkeys and, and, you know, wildlife in general, the insects were enjoying these cereals. So it was attractive. We gave the soil what it wanted. We also gave the wildlife what it wanted. He called me. He couldn't be more excited about the turnout. The deer were hammering the plot. He had killed a turkey out of the plot. And he was excited. And as, as those cereals grew and, and matured and died off physiologically that year, his clovers underneath those cereals were, were filling in some of the skips and voids. And, and, and clover spread through rhizomes as well, you know, sister plants. And they, they were growing as well. So those areas had a chance to grow in. But he also improved the, the level of attraction and nutrition of that plot, not just for deer, but for wild turkeys. And I'm sure songbirds and, and non-game species. So that, that's just one example of sitting back, looking at a potential problem and saying, okay, when we prescribe chemicals to a, a, a problem like this, are we just writing a script for, for the, and, and prescribing the symptoms or are we sitting back and, and defining the true underlying cause and underlying problem and attacking that? So that's one. And, you know, another one is one that I had myself. Um, you know, we have cockleburr. Uh, I never had cockleburr on, on my, my property here until I started feeding corn that I got from my farmer. And, and obviously he had uh, tons of it in his fields, even though he sprays a lot of chemicals. So it came through the, through the feeders, and now I have cockleburr all over the farm. Well, my family decided it was a great idea to buy a golden doodle. Um, and a golden doodle, you know, they're not bred to have coats to, to run like a bird dog. So we were spending hours. I mean, we've become experts at picking cockleburr out of a golden doodle. And it was just irritating me beyond belief. I had to get this stuff covered up. So I went out and I, I just looked at the field and I said, okay, how can I match a plant that I want to this cockleburr plant? So I, I looked up the ecology of the plant, found out, you know, is it an annual, is it a warm season annual, cool season annual? You know, when, when is it pollinating? When is the seed germinating? If I can get ahead of it from a cultural aspect, it can lay there all at once. It's, it's not going to germinate. So I incorporated higher carbon, higher biomass plants, both broadleaf and plants like sorghum sudan, millet, things like that, that a lot of, you know, my dear peers call them useless. And I gave the soil what it wanted. I got control. I can't say the cockleburr is completely gone from drop kind farms, but I gained control of it. Now the dog just gets it in his paws, which we can pick out quite readily. And I also have more diversity in the field. And actually, those two experiences were the birth of what I call my reload series. And I'm not here to sell them. Anybody can certainly make diverse complementary blends on their own. And I really want people to do that. But that, that's, how, that's how the whole idea started that, wow, these, you know, these cover crops that farmers use, 
possess amazing abilities to mimic these wild plants that so many of us don't want, these wild plants that are resistant to Roundup. Um, you know, so, so that, that's, you know, there's two examples there. There's certainly, and I'll be honest with you, I have learned other, I've got clients who, who they, they see this, they see the, the, the dramatic change to bringing life back to their farms and they'll call me up with observations of their own. And I've learned more from them because they're scattered all over the country, you know, Georgia and places, you know, lower coastal plains, South Carolina, places that I don't live full time and they'll explain something that's going on. So I'll leave you with those two little examples, but there's plenty more. Well, talk to me a little bit about how you actually go about using the roller crimper. And I know that there are, I've seen uh, people do like small ones that they can pull by themselves. I know that you have just helped to develop a a compact roller crimper that can be pulled behind a side-by-side or an ATV. So there's lots of different ways to do this. Um, I've even seen a guy just tie, I think you had it on one of your web pages or, or social media feeds, a guy like tied a big log on a rope and just dragged the log across mm-hmm. the field. Uh, to, but talk about what crimping is and yeah. how you're using that to terminate a cover crop. And then you're generally leaving all that uh, basically dead veg- vegetable yeah. matter on top of the soil and you're drilling new crop right in over the top of that. Yeah. And, you know, before I get going with all the expensive equipment, I will say that there are some guys who are doing some incredible things without uh, a drill, without a, a true roller crimper, although we've made them much more affordable by, by making the ATV roller crimper. Um, you know, the, the idea really came about by, by one of the pioneers in cover cropping, Steve Groff, who's a good friend of mine. Steve just wrote a book that'll come out here soon. He's actually from Lancaster County, PA. <clears throat> People all over the world look to Steve because he's been cover cropping for years. Steve has worked in organic vegetable growth down there in Lancaster for so long that, you know, the organic guys, I, I love these organic stickers on things at the grocery store. Uh, the, conve- the traditional organic growers were so hard on soil health. Now they're getting better thanks to people like the Rodale Institute and Steve Groff, but they, you know, they wanted to uh, get away from using chemicals, right? Because us consumers started to realize that chemicals could potentially be these disruptors to our body. So, you know, one of them stepped on a plant one day and said, well, gee, some plants you can step on those that have a straw like stem, buckwheat, everybody's probably familiar with, cereal rye, uh, there's many of them. If you can step on it and kill it when it's, you know, uh, somewhat physiologically mature, we can roll it over and kill it. Well, that was great for the people who wanted to get away from chemicals to terminate a plot. And I do that as well. But what I like the roller crimper for is I can take a four, five, six foot stand of vegetation that, that's crimpable. Um, and, and varying plants crimp terminate at varying you know, levels of success. And I really don't care whether they successfully terminate or not. And, and you can roll that over and create what the soil armor that I talked about, which when the rains come, that soil armor obviously intercepts those rain droplets, minimizing or eliminating all of that runoff. And then it also provides habitat for the biology that we're talking about. So earlier I was talking about, you know, the 
the really small stuff that nobody sees, the microscopic biology, but the earthworms are just incredible shredders of vegetation and, and little fertilizer packets, if you will. So laying that soil armor down, getting away from relying on the heavy use of chemicals um, and, and providing habitat for the microbes, the biology in the soil to consume. You know, it's really neat. When I started roller crimping, my residue was building and building and building. And I told a good friend of mine who's an excellent cover cropper um, with the NRCS in Tennessee. I said, buddy, look at this. Look at all this uh, thatch and this soil armor. I'm crazy about six, eight inches of stuff. He said, you got a problem. And I immediately called him. I said, what do you mean? How can I have a problem? He said, if you're building that much residue, you don't have any biology in your soil. And he was right. But after that one year, the biology rebounded so quickly that now I'm constantly chasing, trying to lay down more residue because the biology is increasing, chewing up all that, that residue, making organic matter and doing good things. But you've got to keep that cycle going. So the roller crimper, you know, again, was Steve Groff's sort of invention. Jake Blank at INJ was the first to, to really build them sort of commercially and Jake is who I bought my first crimper from. And then I worked with Jake and his guys to develop the drop tine crimper, which is the same crimper just painted black with a, with a drop tine logo. I personally don't care how guys get them. If they build them, buy one from Jake, buy one from me. I don't really care. I just want guys to get them. And that's why we made the ATV unit, the four and five foot unit, you know, for roughly $2,600, $2,700. You can have a, a roller crimper that you can fill with water. It's a flip over unit. Um, obviously you'd have to ship it to you as well, but so, so that, that's what the roller crimper, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the roller crimper. Um, it was built again to kill plants, to, to terminate plants without chemicals. I believe it also sort of simulates that animal impact. You know, when we had bison, not Buffalo, but bison here in, in the United States, they walk around that hoof action would, you know, in, in big herbs and they would lay over massive amounts of vegetation and create soil armor. I'll, I'll be crimping sometimes or running the crimper, I should say, but I'm not crimping. I'm running the crimper because I firmly believe it stimulates the biology. If I could get it to poop, I would, I would love for that. But it's, it's sort of like those big hoofed ungulates moving across the landscape and, and if I crimp even 20% and terminate 20% of the stand, I'm happy with that because the balance that pops up is, is a wildlife-friendly plant, and it doesn't get any better than, than a planned disturbance like that. Yeah, well, talk about the way that the deer respond to, to these things as well. You actually had some pictures just yesterday that I happened to see, and we didn't discuss this, but I'd like to hear about it. Um, you posted a couple pictures of an exclusion cage and uh, in a big field that had been planted with one of your multi-species mixes, and it looked to me like the deer had pretty well mowed down most everything in this field, and because inside the cage uh, was, you know, some pretty high vegetation. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about, again, to come back to something you mentioned earlier, you've got a lot of different plant species in these mixes that would not typically be top of mind when we talk about things that deer like to eat. And yet you're seeing deer eat a lot of this stuff. And it's got 
high yeah. protein. A lot of it has high protein levels and you're killing, you know, you and your clients are seeing, you know, not only great deer numbers, but great deer quality. Yeah. That, so that little plot right there was, it was, it was an aha moment for me, sort of an accident finding. And, and now it's a problem. It's become a problem in that I have too many deer. Um, and, and I could, we could shoot 150 deer a year. We would still have too many deer. It has nothing to do with, with local harvest. So that particular product is called Pollinator Preserve. I made that product for the, the guys who wanted to get away from using um, neonic insecticides on their corn and, and from spraying uh, for, for you know, bad insects, if you will, pest insects. And they wanted to ramp up the beneficial insects on their properties. And until you have beneficial insects, you know, you, you're, again, you're relying on insecticides to kill the ones that are consuming your, your plants. So we made that pollinator preserve for that. And then also the honeybee guys, um, and that just happens to be where my honeybees are now. The honeybee guys wanted that pollinator preserve as well. So I put that along my driveway of all places coming up to the house. So it would, you know, both serve that purpose as a pollinator blend. And then also it would look beautiful to, you know, the visitors and whoever, the, the UPS guy. And I quickly noticed when I planted it last year, it's a perennial blend that the does brought the fawns almost uh, at a rate that concerned me right along the driveway, thought they'd leave it alone. We're always in and out. The kids are riding bikes and scooters and who knows what. So I thought, man, I'm not going to be able to grow this, this, this pollinator preserve because I have too many deer. Well, it eventually did. Okay. Um, produced some beautiful flowers, brought on, you know, tons of pollinators, birds, insects. And then as the winter went on, I thought to myself, you know, I wonder how this will, will treat the deer next year because, you know, a, a beekeeper called me one day and he said, I love this stuff. You know, how, how many different species are in it? And I said, I, I really don't know. It, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's hyper diversity. It's, it's, you know, probably 30 or 40. He said, well, would you mind looking at the different packages? So I, we counted them and it was over 60. It was, it was from 59 to 61, somewhere in there. And he was excited to know that. And I, then it got me thinking, why are they eating some of these plants? Now there's plantain and chicory. I, I figured they were, you know, the fawns were eating those. There's, you know, great medicinal value in plantain and chicory from a deworming standpoint. And then I started, I said, you know, there's no better way to know what deer are eating than to throw up a utilization cage or an exclusion cage. And I threw up a tiny one there and I started to watch it on my way in and out of the field. Now, what is it? May it's, it's, you know, first week of May when I took the picture, we've had a cold year there's already a significant difference as you saw inside versus outside. So yesterday I decided to really start looking at the species composition inside versus outside. And, you know, people say that they will not eat cereal rye. They will not eat hairy vetch. Um, they will not eat small burnet. There's many species that we like to think we're smarter than deer and we're just not. But what happens is when you get this species complementariness. And, and you have multiple species working together. They're getting different, different compounds from different plants. And whitetails and all ruminants possess nutritional wisdom. All right, we do too. We just, we've lost it some with the, the bag of Doritos. But whitetails, they have to survive, right? There's no shot that they can get or, you know, drug they can pop that's heroic that makes them better. So they've learned to survive. So they're very good at balancing these toxicities, nutritional toxicities in their system. Perfect example, as I um, have shared many times, we used to have those seven foot tall forward soybeans. 
We put in water guzzlers. We had clover and chicory and brassicas, you name it. But, you know, some of the bucks still, I'm sure does and fawns, we just didn't track them, but the bucks would leave our property and go to some of the ugliest pine hemlock habitat with no diversity on the, on the forest floor, no early succession. And they would go over there from time to time. And we thought, well, that's just what deer do. That's what my biology buddies tell me. Deer just roam. That's what they do. But it's not the rut. Why are they roaming? We started asking the questions. We put up some trail cameras. They're eating bark on hemlock trees. Oh, well, biologists would come in and say, you need to cut this, this timber, get some early succession coming in here, maybe get some of these invasives out. No, they were going over there because even too much of a good thing is a bad thing. They were filling their rumens with high-protein, highly nutritious, highly palatable forage soybeans, but that even that was toxic to their system, so they looked to balance it. That is what caused me to, to initially develop the Reload series, which is how can we get these phenolics and these secondary plant compounds in one blend to try to minimize the amount of time that my bucks, my clients' bucks spend on other properties. So that's what we did. And I, I feel like we selected the right plants and we still continue to, to make small tweaks and adjustments to make sure that the nutritional wisdom is met to the extent that we could feasibly do it in one food plot. So that field that you're talking about was not meant for deer but it has more diversity than any of our deer food plot products. And I feel like the deer are spending more time in it, even though it's right by my driveway, they're spending more time in it because they're able to balance these, you know, too much of, of a good thing is a toxicity. Too little of a good thing is, is, is obviously a, a, a potential toxicity. There's, in, there's balance and imbalance. So that, that's what you saw in that particular plot. And, and that was, you know, that was really an, I don't want to call it an accidental finding, but it was really kind of fascinating because we we thought that the deer were just picking. Last year, I looked, the first year it was planted, and, and they, they were hammering the plantain all summer long. Um, and I had, you know, some guys on Facebook laughing at us because we put plantain. They, they thought it was bananas. Um, we put plantain in our food plots. Well, it... Uh... It definitely seems to be doing something that they're liking. So uh, I want to close with one little tease for something that we probably could come back in the future and do a whole second episode about. And that is one of the most interesting pieces of research that I personally believe that you have ever shared uh, in your columns, and it has to do with chronic wasting disease. And of course, chronic wasting disease is a is a big, big issue across the whitetails range. And everybody who's listening, if you're a deer hunter, you're well aware of CWD and the impact that it's either having in your state where you live or in in states where you uh, travel to hunt or the way that it's impacting your ability to uh, get your your deer and your elk and other servants home, right? If you have to travel across state lines and um, 
There's a lot of news all the time as relates to CWD and here in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's certainly the case now. Our game commission is considering some new regulations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> but you had shared uh, a research study that came, I believe, out of the University of Alberta up in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it took a look at soil and uh, the amount of organic matter in the soil. Mm -hmm. And obviously, a lot of what you and I have talked about today is practices that will increase the organic matter in the soil. And essentially, uh, again, to to put it very simply, the more organic matter you have in the soil, the better. And that's sort of the difference between soil and dirt to go back to the beginning of our conversation, right? Too many of us now are dealing with dirt and not soil because there's very little organic matter left because we've basically stripped it. Um, Mm -hmm. So at any rate, back to this study, they looked at a particular part of the organic matter in the soil called humic acid. And they found that the higher the humic acid level in the soil, the more quickly the prions that are responsible for CWD infection were degraded. And you drew a very, very interesting theoretical conclusion from that, which I think is worthy of a great deal of additional study. And that is this. What if under natural conditions without a lot of human intervention, application of, you know, synthetic (laughs) fertilizers and chemicals and herbicides, insecticides. What if our soil was really healthy and that was Mother Nature's built-in armor defense against the widespread prevalence of chronic wasting disease? And so, Because we have now for 50, 60 years, maybe longer, been unwittingly engaged as a global society in the wholesale destruction of soil health, that we created a perfect storm and these ripe conditions where CWD could go from this relatively obscure illness in the state of Colorado to this national emergency where it's spread. And I realize that this isn't the only reason for CWD spread. Clearly, the the transport and transfer of captive deer and elk has played a big role. But the point is still valid that have we have we depleted nature's defense against this disease to the point that we've created a perfect storm and now we're all suffering the consequences i'm like man if you if you ever wanted an example of how everything in nature is truly interconnected that's it you know 110 percent. i agree yes 110 percent. and it is very at the very least demands more research that that research is out of canada a lot of our research here in the States comes from uh, Wisconsin and there's some good, some good researchers in Wisconsin and there's, there's some not so good researchers in Wisconsin. I think so many of them are focusing um, in the wrong areas, namely, you know, research grants to continue looking for a vaccine, but there is no doubt it extends beyond in my mind, it extends beyond 
the soil dysfunction and degradation to ecological dysfunction and degradation. You know, when we, I, I like to talk about disruptors because that's what I went through with my Lyme disease and my gut chemicals factually disrupted my gut chemicals, you know, whether it's, um, uh, glyphosate or I'm not attacking glyphosate, but that, that's one of them. Um, you know, a lot of the other pollutants that we launch into the air and the, and the waters are disruptors. And yes, they absolutely, without a doubt, the, the prions, as they like to call them, I call them prions as well, because it makes more sense to me, but the, the prions, they, they remain infectious in, in the dirt, in the soil. And you know, that, that not until you allow a, a degraded situation, in my opinion, have they become a problem. Just the irony that they don't like to point out, uh, and, and I'm not blaming anyone. Again, it's just, let's just ask the right questions and bring up the facts. It was first discovered in a Colorado research facility, state-owned Colorado research facility. Now, whether, where you, no matter where you stand on this whole deer farming thing, it doesn't matter to me. It, it, if you put deer inside a fence, you can either have a functional situation or you maintain deer densities the right way, or you can have a dysfunctional situation. So there are good deer farmers and there are bad deer farmers, just like there are good CWD researchers and there are bad ones. So, you know, I, I find it ironic that we first discovered it in a situation that was unnatural. Um, that they, they were, that was their, their mission was to research you know, infection and disease, and they sure enough found it. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, it, it's interesting that, that the soil, um, you know, the humic acids seem to, in this research, it seems seems to degrade the CWD prions and reduce infectivity. And, you know, we don't have nearly as much humic acid in soil organic matter as we once did. And, and that, that that's not just the you know, we don't just blame the farmers for that. We blame all those of us who like to build homes, who like to pour concrete and build Walmarts and, and all of the infrastructure that we have. Well, again, it's just to me, the whole the whole topic is fascinating because, as I said at the very beginning of the show, if you're, if you're a hunter, I, I like to believe that almost all of us consider that that also makes us conservationists and so whether you whether you do food plots whether you manage ground or not you have a vested interest in those who do and the way that it's done and the impact that it's having on all of us uh not just the quality of our hunting but the quality of the food that we're putting into our bodies the quality of the uh, landscape that we all live upon and and ultimately just the whole good of our uh you know ecology so jason we are uh at almost an hour and 15 minutes and so somehow that went by very quickly and i feel like i could talk to you for another hour and 15 but we probably ought to wrap it up for today and and like i said uh, i know that the 
Uh, the latest column that you've just given me for our August issue, I believe, deals with some of the latest information on chronic wasting disease. So perhaps I can get back with you here in the near future and we can <laughs> tack, tackle a whole nother hour on CWD and, and what's going on in that world. And by that time, we'll probably have a better idea as to how Pennsylvania is going to choose to respond and, and we can hit on some of the latest regulations and, and where everything seems to be head. Absolutely. I enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, you got it, my friend. Keep up the good work. And uh, why don't we just give you a brief moment if you have listened to today's show and kudos to you for making it an hour and a quarter. If you're interested in more, I do want Jason to have an opportunity to let you know he's got a couple uh, different forums online where you can uh, join the discussion about some of these things if you're interested in implementing some of these practices yourself. So where can folks connect with you, Jason? Yeah, you know, one of my favorite my favorite um, platforms is the Regenerative Wildlife Agriculture Closed Group, um, which is really kind of a group of thought leaders that, that we just you know, we there's ag guys in there, there's food plot guys in there, and there's those of us who are trying to get away from the synthetics and everything we just discussed. So that that group is really fun. Um, and that's on that's on Facebook. Know, yeah, that that's a Facebook group, regenerative wildlife agriculture with food plots in parentheses. Um, yeah, other than that, the Drop Time Seed Company, if they jump on there, there's if you go into regenerative wildlife ag, there's um, some of the products that that we've developed for this and. Other than that, I uh, through Jason at droptineseed.com, enjoy um, getting emails of you know, stories, pictures, and you know hurdles and uh, questions that people have. Obviously, I, I try to answer all my emails, and it seems like in the last two or three years that has become impossible to do. But I I try my best to keep up with as many as I can. So um, those two avenues are probably a very good place to start. And then there are you know Drop Time Seed Company has. Um, facebook page where we also post some of our stuff on there well that's great man thank you again so much really appreciate it and i look forward to talking to you again thank you for listening to peterson's bow hunting radio the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters pick up the latest issue of peterson's bow hunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com